Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're studying Genesis right now. We're coming up, we're right around chapter 30 today. We're gonna finish the end of 29 and then get into 30 today. But as we're studying these chapters, we've been reading about this guy named Jacob. And the name Jacob in Hebrew means heel holder or supplanter. And essentially what that means is the kind of guy who likes to get his way by manipulation and deception. He was given this name by his mom when he was born, and it's been a fitting name for him through most of his life, as we've read so far, because he was a man of deceit, and he liked tricking people to get his own way. And last week, he began to reap what he had sown in his life. He came across this girl that he fell in love with, and her father-in-law was just as conniving and deceptive as Jacob was. Now, the reason why we're reading all of this is because these people are our ancestors through faith. This is not some story about some person off in some distant land. This is our history. This is our spiritual family tree. So the things that God did in Jacob's life are important to us because through faith we're connected to this, but it also tells us a lot about God's character. We get to understand who God is and the way he does things by studying the way he worked with people who are connected to us through our faith family tree. So as we're studying Jacob, um, and last week as we we found that he kind of met his match with his father-in-law Laban, um, we're gonna pick up the story today and I'm gonna gonna kind of give us a little assignment as we read through it. Uh, But before we do that, I kind of give you where we're going today. I wanna recap where we've been and where we're going for today, for those of you that are maybe just jumping in today. So we're reading about this guy named Jacob. He's one of the fathers of faith, um, pioneers for the nation of Israel. He's actually gonna get the name Israel today. But he uh, worked seven years for this girl. He came and met this girl. This girl's name is Rachel. He fell in love with her and he went to her father Laban and said, "Um, I want to marry your daughter. And her father said, okay, if you work for me for seven years um, and prove your worth, then I'll give you my daughter in marriage. Well, on the wedding night, surprise, it's not Rachel. He's marrying her older sister, Leah. Well, as you can imagine, Jacob's pretty upset because he was in love with Rachel. He didn't really want to marry Leah, but now he is because according to the customs, the firstborn gets married off first. So he goes back to Laban rather than just being satisfied with his wife. He goes back and says, okay, but I really wanted Rachel and I I still want to marry Rachel even though I've got a wife. I now want another one. Okay, that's a big red flag. You don't want two wives. Jacob thought it was a good idea, so he went to Laban, and he told Laban, he said, you know, I I want to marry Rachel as well. So Laban said, okay, if you work for me for another seven years, then you can marry Rachel as well. But I'll go ahead and let you marry her before the seven years is up, as long as you commit to it. And Jacob's like, okay, I'll be a man of integrity. I'll start to change my heart a little bit. I agree. So he agreed. He married Rachel, and then uh, for the next seven years, he continued to work with Laban. So this is where we pick up the story today. We're picking up the story right after Jacob marries Rachel. Now, I wanna give a little disclaimer because typically the way I teach, um, we read through the scriptures and after we have a couple sections of scripture, we'll pause and we'll talk about what we just discussed. Um, And then there'll be some application. How does this apply to what we're doing today? But I'm gonna take a little bit different approach today. I wanna be very heavy on the historical side because what's gonna take place between 30, 31, and 32, uh, the first half of 32, is going to point to ultimately what's happening at the end of 32. There is something very important that happens in Jacob's life at the end of these sections of scripture. And so what I'm gonna do today is we're gonna do, we're gonna be a little more heavy on the historical side and I'm gonna read some and then I'm gonna give you an understanding of what it is because it, it, it's a little bit complicated uh, as you read through this to kind of parse out what is happening because it reads these sections, these chapters of Genesis, they read like a family tree. And the reason why they read like a family tree is because, well, it is a family tree. 
This, what you're seeing here, these boys that are about to be born, there's like 11 of them and 12 ultimately, they will become the tribes of Israel. Okay, so when you read through Exodus and you see that God freed the people of Israel from Egypt and then they start wandering in the desert for 40 years and you see them reference these different tribes, Asher, um, Manasseh, Judah, Levi, and all these different tribes have different personality types and they're responsible for different things. And, and then in Joshua, these tribes move into the land of Israel and they start setting up camps. Their family tree, how they got these names is tracked to these boys. So Jacob's sons are gonna be named, specific names, and then they will have kids and they'll keep this family name. It's kind of like your last name. That's how this is established. So it reads like a family tree because it is. Now the person who wrote this, most scholars believe that the person who wrote Genesis was probably Moses. He went back and wrote down the oral history that had been carried through through all these years up until the point of the Exodus. And when he's recording this, what he's essentially doing, he's letting know, he's, there's essentially two million Israelites that have just been freed from Egypt and they're wandering in the desert and he wants them to know their family history. So he records Genesis and this is where it begins. So I wanna give it its due, I wanna read it like a family, a family history and not um, pause so much to kind of give a, a, a bunch of personal reflections. So today will be a little different than normal. But what I want you to do as we're going through is I want you to kind of trace with your, with your finger in your mind, if you will, um, the, the change in Jacob's heart. Okay, this is important. Because up until what we're going to today, Jacob has been one personality. He's been one kind of person. He's, he's had one identity, as we'll say. And as we go through today, the next couple chapters, what you're gonna see is God changing Jacob's heart using his surroundings. It wasn't until Jacob met somebody who was equally as deceptive as him that he started realizing what happens when you deceive people. It's fun deceiving people, but when you're the one getting deceived, it's not so fun. And God used that situation to start awakening things in Jacob's heart and starts changing him. So sitting under poor leadership changed Jacob. And this is God's track record. He does this a lot. He does this with David. David was one of the greatest kings of Israel, but how did he learn to become a king? He sat under Saul, who was the worst king that Israel ever had. God's got a track record of, of, of raising us up by sitting us under people who are not qualified for the position so that you can learn what not to do. That's kind of the thing he does. We don't like it. That's not how we would do it, but that's how he does it. And it works pretty well. So what I want to do today is I want to jump into Genesis chapter 29. We didn't read the last couple verses uh, last week um, <clears throat> because I, I kind of wanted to, the end of 29 and the beginning of 30 are what I like to refer to as like the baby wars. Um, you'll find out why I call it that in a minute, but it, it groups together well starting at the end of 29, so that's where we're going to jump in. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to start in verse 30. We'll throw it up on the screen so you can follow along as well but let's get to it. All right, now, so remember, as we're reading this, don't get lost in all of the information. Don't, don't forget the fact that everything about what we're reading here is about Jacob's identity because everything flows out of identity. Don't forget that. Everything we do flows out of who we are. Who we are directs what we do. So what you're seeing is Jacob experiencing things and making choices because of who he is. So let's pick it up. Verse 30 and 29, it says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, this is after they got married, he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So that was kind of where we landed last week. So Jacob's now got two wives and each wife has a servant and he loves one wife more than the other. On verse 31, it says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated now, that word hated in Hebrew is not like we would use the word hated. It's not like um, uh, I despise this thing. It's a comparative term. So it's a Hebrew word that essentially means I love this thing so much that my love for this is like hate. Okay, so what he's saying, what uh, Moses is telling us is that the Lord saw that Leah was not loved in the same way that Rachel was loved. So what did God do about it? So God opened up her womb but Rachel was barren. So Rachel got the love, but Leah got the kids. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. 
For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my afflictions, for now my husband will love me. Isn't, isn't that sad? This woman was convinced that she could make her husband love her because he, she gave him children. Do you see the dysfunction? We're just starting to scratch the surface too. So she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've given him three sons. I don't know about you, but at this point, my heart's starting to break for this girl, Leah. Poor thing, she's made in God's image, but she just wasn't loved. Therefore, his name shall be called Levi. Now, Levi eventually is gonna become the tribe of priests. And then she conceived again, so this is four kids, four, four boys. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, man, I'm gonna praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. Let's go to verse 30. So Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. So we've got, the tally now is four to nothing. That's how they're treating us, right? It's a football game. I guess that's wrong. What's another sport that's only one point instead of baseball? It's four, four to oh. We're in the third inning now. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. That's interesting. So she's starting to envy. So we've got hate, we've got envy. So she says to Jacob, give me children or I'm going to die. Wow. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, all right, all right, all right, all right. Here's my servant, Bilhah. That's a good name if you're writing baby names. You can have a kid. Bilhah, write that one down. Go into her so that she can give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah's wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, ha ha, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Well, not really, not so much. So she called his name Dan. <laughs> mm. Could have tried harder on that one. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob another son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and she gave her to Jacob as a wife. So, okay, so now Jacob's got four wives. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, ah, good fortune has come to me. What? What is wrong with you people? So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So I shall call his name Asher. Well, let's pause there and take a tally. We've got four wives married to the same man. This is probably a good point, uh, place for me to kind of reference something that you're gonna see moving forward as we study a lot of the Old Testament. I should reference this concept of polygamy. Now, polygamy is the fancy word we would use for having more than one wife or more than one husband. And as you read through the Old Testament, you're gonna come across people who, who the New Testament would, would say, these are, these are pillars of faith, these are, these are men of God, these are people who, who, who really just kind of overcame and trust God for great things, but they also had seven wives and 15 girlfriends. And it becomes so common that the takeaway for a lot of us would be, well, is that God's plan? Is that, God, why are you okay with this kind of stuff? Well, let me make it as abundantly clear as I possibly can. This was never God's plan. Polygamy, having more than one spouse, has never been God's plan. Here's my only evidence I need to cite. Go back to the very beginning when God establishes what marriage is, Genesis 2, 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his wife. Excuse, excuse leave his wife. That's funny. That's funny. He put that one in the book too. There's Lyle. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. How many wives should he hold to? One. And they shall become one flesh. So in Genesis, 
God explicitly states that marriage is between one man and one woman. That is abundantly clear. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It is not between one man and another man, or one woman and another woman, or one man and four women, or four women and four men. Well, I guess if they paired up, that'd be okay. The point I'm trying to get across here is that God has explicitly states what he establishes as good in relationship. It is not some boyfriend and some girlfriend. It is not some old man and a child. It is one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. That's what God says. Anything outside of that strict definition that God set up is disastrous. It's sin. And we're about to find out how disastrous it is because when Jacob starts inviting all of these women into a marriage covenant, we've got one man and four women, and what we see is a covenant not of blessing and love and joy, it's hatred and betrayal and competition. That's what comes of ignoring God's best. What, it, what, it, what, what you get is Leah, who has children but no love, and Rachel, who has love but no children. It has Rachel and Leah, who are sisters, grew up together, starting to dishonor their marriage by bringing even more women into the covenant of marriage. And in the next verses, I'm not gonna read these, but in the next verses, it, it gets even worse. Rachel trades Jacob to Leah for some mandrakes. Rachel's not having kids and she's starting to panic. Yeah, her servants are having, but she knows deep down that's not the same thing. She wants her own kids. So what she does is she goes to her sister, Leah, whose son is apparently a mandrake farmer. Mandrakes are like these, these fruits uh, in, in, the, in the Middle East and they have these superstitious tendencies. Um, women believe that if you could get a hold and eat mandrakes, what it would do is it would, it would fertilize your system. It would make you the kind of person who could bear children. So at this point, Rachel's trying anything she can. She's even bargaining and giving her husband away to the other wife for the night so that she could possibly get a piece of fruit that might change her circumstances. That's how bizarre and broken this has gotten. And just for those of you who are playing at home, the final count is that Leah has six boys and one girl. So that's six for Leah. Zilpah brings in uh, two more Sorry, I don't count on my fingers much. Bilhah brings in two boys, so that's 10. And then at the end of this chapter, Rachel eventually has a son named Joseph. That's 11. And then later in Genesis, we'll cover this later, she has another boy named Benjamin. That's, excuse me, 12. Now, when we eventually get into Exodus, Joseph has two kids when he's in Egypt, and those two kids replace him as one of the tribes. And the other tribe, Levi, is not considered among the tribes because they are the priests. So it's 12, 12 sons, 12 tribes when you eventually move into the land of Israel. But I bring this up because all this dysfunction is connected to one thing, Jacob's identity. Why is this marriage so broken? It's broken because Jacob deceived his brother and because of that deception, he had to leave home to find a wife. And when he finally gets to the town uh, to find this wife, he, find, he, he begins to reap what he's sowed. And so he's given, he's deceived by his father-in-law and he's given this one wife, Leah, but that's not enough for him. He wants another wife. So his identity in always getting what he wants puts him in this situation where now he's got two wives and then eventually four. He got tricked, but then he can't say no, and he wants more. He grieves to marry all of these wives. Jacob is choosing and he's allowing these things. And there's, there's some things that Jacob is saying, I know that this isn't right, but I want it anyway. And there are some things that he's, when his wives start arguing because of the choices he's made, he's not putting his foot down. When his wife comes to him and says, hey, I want you to marry my, um, my servant so that we can have children. Jacob could have just said, no, no, I don't want any more wives, no more. But he didn't, he said, all right, more. He's allowing things and he's choosing things and these decisions are creating um, this dysfunction in his family. 
And I bring this up because it illustrates the point that I said when I said, we're, okay, we're, we're tracking the life of Jacob. Everything is flowing out of his identity. Everything he does is because of who he is. He's making these decisions because of who he is on the inside. That identity, who he is, is determining what he's doing, and God is changing that. God's changing who he is, and it's gonna start changing what he does. Because in all this dysfunction, God is still blessing and he's still fulfilling his promises. And this is the point where we should be reminded of Romans 2.4, where Paul tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What, God, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you allowing? Why are, why? This is, I wouldn't allow this. God's like, well, that's why you're not God. Why are you allowing? Because if you want somebody to repent, you don't beat them over the head with a bat. You show them kindness, because kindness leads to repentance. It's the way God does it, and it's the way he expects his people to do it. Now we're convinced we've got a better way, and if we could just get God on the phone, and we could communicate and just let him know, hey, we figured out a different way. We can get people to repent a much better way. Have you seen how Facebook works? I just post things, and it makes people change their hearts. That's never how it's been. Kindness leads to repentance. And God is being kind to Jacob in the midst of his foolishness, and it's changing him. Let me show you how that looks because it starts showing up in chapter 30. So uh, Genesis 30, go down to verse 25. Let's pick up there. So Jacob's had all these children, and he's starting to realize that he's being deceived by his father-in-law. He's had enough of it. So in verse 25, so as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I've given to you. Interesting, okay. So for the first time in Jacob's life, we see him making arguments based off of his own character and integrity. You can let me go with a good conscience because I have for the last 20 years served you with integrity. I haven't taken advantage of you. Well, that's interesting because that's different than the way you lived your first half of your life, Jacob. So it seems to me like things are starting to change in you and God is doing the work. Verse 27 says, but Laban said to him, man, I have found favor in your sight. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've learned by divination. <laughs> I consulted some demonic spirits and I've learned <clears throat> that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Well, I mean, you didn't have to go to demon spirits for that. You have to go to a, a tarot card reader to find that out and just look around. So uh, I'll tell you what, go ahead and name your wages and I will, I will give it to you. And Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how uh, you, your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I showed up and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So I've, I've been here and I've taken care of you and God's blessed you through me. But I've got nothing for my household. And so he says, what shall I give you now? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, that they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban said, all right, good. Well, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban deceived, like he does. And so he goes through and he removes the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons and told his sons to go three days journey down the road by himself away from Jacob. So Jacob went ahead and pastured the rest of Laban's flock. All right, now it'd be a little confusing as we're reading through it. So essentially what's happened is Jacob has asked Laban, after 20 years, I'm ready to go home, I wanna leave. And Laban doesn't want him to leave because he knows that he's being blessed because of Jacob being there. God's blessing Jacob and he's receiving the residual of that. 
So they make a deal and the deal is essentially, Jacob says, I don't want anything from you, but if you want to offer something, here's what I'll do. I'll go through your flock and I'll remove all of the odd animals, all of the speckled, the spotted, the striped, the goats, the sheep, all the ones. So these are the, the like the, um, the, when a, you know, most sheep are all one color, most goats, they're not striped or spotted. And so for Jacob to say, I'll go through and I'll just pull out these, he's essentially saying, I'll take just like the 2% of your flock and you can keep the rest. So they agree on it. And as soon as they finish agreement, Jacob walks away and Laban tells his sons, all right, go out into the flock and pull out every single one of the ones that I just gave away to him and then go take it three days away. Make him disappear. So, I mean, the moment they make a deal, as soon as he turns his back, he, Laban pulls all the ones that he just promised to Jacob out of the flock and sends them away. So Jacob is left with just a regular old flock. He's got nothing. But what did he do in return? The old Jacob would have tried to pull a fast one. He would have tried, you know, showed up three days later and then pulled them all back, but that's not what he does. He goes and he commits to pasture Laban's flock, having known that he had just been underhanded. But what's interesting is in the next chapter, we find out that God actually gave Jacob a dream before this actually happened, before this conversation ever happened. God told Jacob in a dream, hey, um, in the next coming season, the only thing that the sheep are gonna produce are uh, black and spotted sheep. The only goats that are gonna be birthed are ones that are spots and stripes. So when you go make a deal, this is the ones I want you to ask for. So Jacob already knew it was gonna happen. So with integrity, even though he was being deceived, he went and he pastured Laban's flocks, he pulled them over, he watered them, he kept them, he shepherded them, and then surprise, in the next season, every single one of them that was birthed was spotted and striped and speckled. Well, this starts leading some frustration between Laban's family because Jacob was deceived again and again and again, but we're seeing him react differently. He, we're seeing him react with integrity. Jacob is changing. Why is he changing? Because God's working on his heart. He's changing his identity. He's working on the inside of him and he's changing who he is. And we're seeing that this deception, when it comes up, it's bringing out different things inside of Jacob. And this is the reason why Jacob wanted to leave. When Jacob approaches his father-in-law and says, I want to go, this is not just, I want to go back to my hometown. This is the same heart cry that Abraham had when it was time for him to leave this hometown. Because there comes a time for everyone to decide, I've had enough of the way things are in this world and I'm ready to come out from this. I'm ready to forsake the way the world does things and I'm ready to follow God. I'm ready to turn my back on this God forsaken place and this deception and this manipulation. I don't wanna participate in it and I don't want it done to me. And so I'm gonna walk away from this and forsake it and I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna embrace what God has for me. And Jacob was eventually at this place. And so for Jacob, leaving wasn't just about leaving a, whole, an, a, a hometown um, for his uh, wives. For Jacob, leaving was about leaving the old Jacob behind. This is about saying, I've had enough and I'm ready for something new. The old me is dead and it's time for me to leave this. So what I want you to do is pick up in Genesis 31, verse one, after Laban's sons start finding out what Jacob has done, and he's being fruitful in the middle of the deception, how do they respond? Now Jacob, this is uh, Genesis 31.1, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying to each other, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, um, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that I have served your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. But God did not permit me to harm, for, for him to harm me. 
If he said, this is what God told him, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Because God has taken away the livestock from your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flocks were striped, spotted, and molted. And the angel of God told me in that dream, Jacob, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing. So God did this. God was responsible for making sure that Jacob was blessed, even though Jacob wasn't making wise decisions. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land from your kindred. So then, so he's telling his wives this, Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion of inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he sold us and he's indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. So as the flocks are producing more and more sheep and goats, Jacob is prospering. And this sets Laban's sons on edge. And it, 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 it essentially leads to a situation where Jacob calls his wives together and explains the situation and they agree our father has un, is underhanded. He's taken, see, because what's supposed to happen in a typical marriage is that uh, in, in this time is um, a husband would bring an inheritance to, uh, or a dowry to the father of the bride and give a big chunk of money as evidence that, hey, I can take care of your wife so you can let her go. And then the father is supposed to hold on to that money in this culture because if something happens to the husband or if a divorce happens or something, then that money is what the father uses to give to the daughter to take care of herself now that she doesn't have a husband anymore. Well, what Laban did was he took all that money and he spent it. It's all gone. And so Leah and Rachel have nothing. Their father disowned them essentially. So they're on the same page. And for the first time, we see them agreeing about something. But the only reason why they're agreeing is because they have a common enemy. That's a, that's a warning for us, right? Don't chase unity when the only thing you have in common is the same enemy. I mean, that's, that's no way to live in unity. So they all agree, and what they decide to do in the end of this chapter, verses 17 through 55, is that Jacob and his family decide to flee in the middle of the night, but Rachel does something underhanded. She decides to steal her father's idols. Now, in, uh, in historical context, what these idols were, uh, these were the divination idols that he probably used um, to find out uh, what was happening or where they would have gone. So Rachel took these idols, not because she loved them and coveted them, but she took them probably so that her husband couldn't, or for her father couldn't follow them. So she took the idols and uh, Jacob and his family flee in the night. A couple days later, Laban finds out that they're gone. And so he chases them down and accuses them of theft. And Jacob allows Laban to search through their tents and everything to try and find them. But Rachel is sitting on them and she refuses to stand up. So Laban doesn't search there, he doesn't find this, and at this point, Jacob loses it, and he expo essentially exposes all of Laban's deception. He just, he lets him have it, he just rips him apart. You know, for, for, for all these years I served you, and all you did was give me pay cut after pay cut after pay cut, and all I did was increase your wealth. God has been with me, and all you've done is taken advantage of it. So Jacob, or Laban at this point, he's, kind of upset, he's taken aback, and so he uh, ag agrees to set a truce so that they're not at war anymore, and then um, they part ways, and Laban goes home, and Jacob starts heading home. So Jacob, finally, is free. Now he's got four wives, 12 sons, 11 sons, and a daughter. He's blessed, and he's going home. But there's one issue. Going home means he's got to face his brother Esau. Now, the whole reason why he left home was because of Esau. He tricked Esau. He stole his birthright. He dressed up like his brother. He pretended to be somebody he wasn't. And he stole something that wasn't supposed to be his. And it made his brother so angry that his brother wanted to kill him. So his mom sent him away. That's the whole reason why he was gone. Now he's coming back. He, he left one way, but he's coming back a different way. And God has the power to change hearts and give new identities. But the problem is that, as we're about to see with Jacob, is that 
even though you have a new identity, your old identity often has caused old wounds. And eventually, even though you have a new identity, you're gonna have to face those old wounds. See, old you, before you met Christ, made some pretty dumb decisions. And even though Christ has saved you and transformed you, that doesn't negate those dumb decisions. And I'm talking about all the way up to the point of like serving prison time, having to deal with old decisions. You may be a new person, but you still have to face old wounds. And that's what Jacob is going to be confronted with when it comes to Esau. He's got to go back as a new man, but face old issues. And these wounds oftentimes have lasting consequences. Part of our new identity in Christ and part of Jacob's new identity, because it's connected to Christ, is this idea of reconciliation and forgiveness. It is important for us as Christians to make that the main thing about our life, reconciliation and forgiveness. Why? Because it's the cornerstone that our salvation rests on. The only reason why you're right with God is because Christ chose to forgive you. Not because you earned it, because you did enough. You're right before a holy God because of what Christ did, because he forgave you. So what gives you the right to say, I'll take forgiveness, but I'm not giving it to anybody. I'll accept forgiveness, but no one's gonna give it for me. I'm gonna hold grudges. What would it be like on the cosmic scales before a holy God if Jesus held a grudge against you the way you're holding grudges against other people? Well, you don't know what I've been through. You're right, I don't, but Jesus knows what you've been through and he chose to forgive you anyway. And so this idea of reconciliation and forgiveness is something Jacob's gonna have to face. The problem is it's difficult, it's not easy. It's almost like it's a wrestling match. So Genesis 32, we're gonna read the end of it, but I wanna paraphrase the, the first half of it. Genesis 32, verses one through about 23. 23, Jacob starts heading home and the reality that he's gotta face his brother sets in and he starts being paralyzed with fear. So what he does is he takes his servant and he sends like 200 goats with his servant and he says, I want you to go ahead of me and I want you to try and find Esau and his camp and his family and I want you to let him, them know that I'm a blessed man and I'm giving this as a peace offering to my brother, that I don't want war with him. I'm sorry for the way that I did things and I want reconciliation and peace. So, so he's sending his servant out with a gift. Well, the servant leaves with the gift and then Jacob takes his wives and his children and he sends them across the river and says, I want you to camp a couple miles down the road. I don't want anybody seeing you. It's just gonna be me when I meet my brother. Because if he's still enraged and he's still a violent, hairy man, he might feel like he needs to take it, you know, he needs to, he needs to take revenge into his own hands and I, I might come back with nothing. Now, did, did God tell him that he would come back with nothing? No, God told Jacob over and over, no, you're blessed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. So Jacob had a promise from God, but Jacob had a hard time believing that promise. So he's doing some maneuvering to kind of, you know, just protect his investment. And that's the wrestling I'm talking about. God promises one thing, but we're not really sure. And it causes this struggle. We're new, but we've got this old and it causes this struggle. And that struggle is personified in what we're about to read now. So Genesis 32 verses 24. And this is what I've told you we've been building to. Everything up to this point was historical context and family tree to get to this moment. And what we're gonna see is a beautiful demonstration of what's going on in Jacob's hearts and ultimately what's going on in our hearts as well. Genesis 32, verse 24. It says, Jacob was left alone that night and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please 
tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. From 24 to 32, we see a wrestling match between Jacob and a man. And at the end of that verse, when Jacob says, I've seen God face to face, he reveals that he wasn't just wrestling with some man or some angel, he was wrestling with God. He was wrestling with a very specific member of the Godhead, the Trinity, and his name was Jesus. Jacob spent the night wrestling with Jesus. Now, in your mind's eye, I want you to imagine what this looks like, because if you just read this too fast, it jumps in it so quick, it's hard to kind of grasp what's happening. There's two guys, and they're wrestling all night long, long and, and Jacob's sitting there as the, the sun starts to set, and I can just imagine like somebody putting, Jesus putting his hand on his shoulder, and Jacob is such on edge that he grabs his hand and they turn and they begin to wrestle. And the wrestling match, blood, you know, sweat, dirt, just covering each guy. And, and somebody gets pinned and then somebody gets flipped and then they get pinned. And this goes all night long. Jacob is wrestling with Jesus all night long. And then finally, Jesus is like, all right. Now it's not like Jesus wasn't strong enough to pin him. That's not what's happening. Jesus is like, all right, it's daybreak. Time for me to wrap it up. And Jacob's response is like, no, not, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And then he responds, he says, what's your name? He says, Jacob, not anymore. I'm giving you a new name. I'm giving you a new identity. From this day forward, you will never be known as the supplanter, the heel holder, the manipulator, the deceiver. From this day forward, you will be known as Israel, the father of a coming nation. This story is powerful because we see Jesus wrestling with Jacob and what we see is a parable. I mean, when you read this, you might, at first thought, you might be like, that's so weird. But, is anybody, like that's bizarre. Well, I don't even understand why that's in there. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus come down and wrestle? I don't, I don't understand what's happening. That's, what's going on? Well, you remember how Jesus taught in the New Testament? What, how did he teach? In parables. He would say, hey, there, a farmer went and sowed these seeds, and the seeds are kind of like this, and the farm is kind of like this. You want to understand these big kingdom principles? I'm going to give you some kind of word picture. I'm going to show you what it's like. He goes and he curses this fig tree as a demonstration. This, this represents something else. Well, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He comes down and he gives Jacob a visual representation of the thing that's been happening in Jacob's heart his entire life, and that is wrestling. Jacob is coming home, and he's returning as a new man, but in his heart is this wrestling with the person he used to be. There's this struggle with who he is now and who he used to be, and what is that going to impact on my brother? Is he going to really understand that I'm a new man? But it's also the inner struggle that he's had his entire life. The way that, how do I get things done? Well, I get things done by getting my own way, by manipulating people and getting things to do things for me. No, that's not how things get done. In fact, Jacob, you've been wrong your whole life. You're not blessed because you've manipulated and you convinced your mom to do this or you convinced because you've got these wives. You, this happened because God let this happen. God did this to you. You didn't do this to yourself. In spite of the things that you did do to yourself, he used those things for his glory. And so while we're reading this story and we're seeing this man wrestle with God, we see the same struggle in our own lives. And it's funny because as we're looking at this, what are we seeing? It's almost like looking in a mirror. Because what's happening to Jacob and what's happening in his life is the same thing that happens with us. Every single person in this room was born with an identity. 
You're born with an identity in your family of who you are, and you grow up and you feed this identity, and everything that you do flows out of that identity. This is who I am, and so this is what I do, and this identity is all we know. It's who we are. It's down to the core, who we are, and then all of a sudden, you meet Jesus. You meet the ladder that comes out of heaven and connects heaven to earth. And the, the man Jesus, who's calling you higher, calls out your name and says, follow me. And in that follow me is the assumption or the invitation to forsake your old identity so you can take a new one. Responding to Christ's follow me is an invitation to a new life, to accept a completely new identity, a completely new name, and a new walk. And oftentimes, it, it requires the, the, the Lord wounding you in a way where your walk is, your physical walk is completely different. You don't even look the same or talk the same. Who you are to the outside world is completely different after Christ gets done wrestling with you. And our response is always, yes, I believe. But what follows is this wrestling match that we see here. Because old wounds often don't understand your new identity and also your old identity tries to regain control. This is what most of Paul talks about in the New Testament, this idea where the old self and the new self are at war, the flesh and the spirit. So we're standing here and we're, we're reading the story of Jacob and we're watching him wrestle and like I said, it's like looking in a mirror and my question for you today is, do you see how your old identity is fighting with God for control in the same way that Jacob wrestled with God for his way over God's way. Can you start tracking in Jacob's life, oh, he wanted it, God wanted it, he wanted it, God wanted it. Can you see that same pattern in your life? Does watching this parable play itself out open your eyes to the fact that your old identity is keeping you from obeying God? You're a new creature, but you keep acting like the old creature. You're new. You've been reborn. There is, this is new. You're different. But you constantly struggle and wrestle with who you used to be. Do you see your new identity causing turmoil in past relationships? Do you, do you see how important identity is? That's, and I, I said at the beginning of this, we're taking a long time to get to one main thing. And the main thing today is, do you understand how important your identity is in Christ. When I say that, it's like, well, I, I guess I understand that. No, 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 no. Everything revolves around who you are. Everything you do flows out of who you are, and that's why Jesus is changing who you are. Now, let me press on this just a little bit. If everything flows out of our identity and we do based off of who we are, is this the reason why every political and sexual and social and athletic and media organization wants you to root your identity in them? Because if your identity is rooted in them, then they can control you and get you to do what they want you to do. Do you, do you see? Everything is rooted in identity. Who are you? Well, I'm an alumni of this college. And because I'm an alumni, I now feel obligated to give back to this organization. Who's pushing that identity? The organization who's going to benefit from that check you strike. Stroke. My identity is rooted in this political system. Have you ever wondered why you feel so committed to this specific political system and, and who sold you on that? There are systems that benefit from you rooting your identity in, in something other than Christ. There are entire systems and structures in place to help you have an identity here in this world. And I've got bad news for you. On the one side, it makes you feel okay and good because now I got a place, I got a family, I got people, I'm connected to something. But guess what? They don't care about you being connected and having a family. They care that you're funding their organization. They care that they get to stay 
floating. They, get, they, they care that you're a part and your identity is rooted in them because they benefit, not because you benefit. And so the invitation is the same invitation it's always been. Are you ready to forsake this world? Are you ready to leave your identity behind and take on a new one? What's the new one? What's the new identity? Colossians 3.13. You have been raised with Christ. So seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So this is what I wanna leave you with. Everything that we see today on the news is a manifestation of the identity war in the hearts of humans. Everything. Where you pledge your allegiance, your obedience flows out of. And as a Christian, there is no room for allegiance to anything but Christ. He is it. There is no room for allegiance to a denomination, organization, or a governmental structure, or some sexual identity. There is no room for identity for you to be who you are outside of Christ. So, all of the wrestling that takes place between you thinking I'm this way and God saying, no, you're this way. The invitation for today is simply stop wrestling. And as a pastor who takes great pride in putting together messages and teaching each week, I, the, the irony is not lost on me that the, the whole point of today's message is to tell you one thing, stop wrestling. The irony is not lost on me of how simple that sounds. We come in here today thinking, oh, it's gotta be more difficult than that. It's gotta be, there's gotta be more work than that. It's gotta be something I gotta do. What do I have to do? I want different results. Show me what I gotta do. What do I have to read? What do I need to study? Can you give me a book? Are there some podcasts I can listen to? Nope, none of that will help. Here's what you do. Stop wrestling. Stop wrestling. Just rest in your identity in Christ. No, that's too easy. That's a cop out. No, it's the most biblical thing you'll hear today. If you want the wrestling to stop, then surrender and let him have his way and his timing and stop trying to tell him how to do his job. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.